Father, now we, we do gather in your name, in your presence, in your honor. We want to exalt uh, you as the only God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We want to praise you uh, with our words, with our thoughts, with our deeds. Lord, help us to do so. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, in light of what we uh, covered last week, we're going to begin tonight uh, with a hymn. Uh, we're going to begin with Ancient Words, hymn number 31. And so let me invite you to open up your hymnals, and David's going to come and lead us. Let's stand and sing together. Well, that is a declaration that we uh, bring to the table. That's a, a declaration that we bring as God's people as we come together that uh, we need to hear from the ancient words of Scripture, that they are uh, alive and active, uh, that God's Word is penetrating and piercing, uh, that it is um, uh, His Word to us to correct us and to instruct us, to uh, teach us and to train us in all righteousness. And so uh, by way of review, uh, we established that foundation, I hope, uh, last week. We said that we need uh, to hear from God. Uh, ultimately, He is the source of truth, and, and we need to hear from Him. And we uh, said that we best know Him through His Word. He speaks to us through His Word, both His written Word and His incarnated uh, Word. And uh, as it relates to His written Word, we said that we must stand upon Scripture. We must be confident in its message. Uh, we must uh, not uh, apologize for it. We must seek to, to believe it and stand upon it, to declare it, to live according to it. And we must uh, stand under Scripture. That is, we must acknowledge that uh, God is the authority and He has spoken to us through His Word, that none of us are uh, in and of ourselves the authority on this or any other issue. We want to know what Scripture has to say and we want to be uh, corrected by it. Uh, we want to stand under it humbly, uh, acknowledging that we fall short of living uh, according to God's standard and His Scripture corrects us uh, and uh, leads us by His, His, His Spirit to repent and uh, speaks of uh, the gospel of salvation, words of life that uh, we know uh, upon belief make us right with, with the Lord. We also said that we read Scripture in light of the gospel and that we must address the culture in light of the gospel. Those were the basic presuppositions that we uh, we brought to the table and that we are going to seek to address this issue according to. Also, we looked at the Genesis story. We looked at the story of creation, and we're going to spend a bit more time there tonight looking at Genesis 1 and, and 2. But uh, we, we established two key truths from that story, from the Genesis story that we mentioned last week. And, and here are those two uh, truths. We said that God designed sexual intimacy... Uh, to express and strengthen unity between Adam and Eve. God designed sexual intimacy to uh, express and strengthen unity between Adam and Eve. And we also said uh, that we, uh, what we read in Genesis 2, uh, when we read about this one uh, flesh union, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, from the specific to the general. In other words, uh, we have this story of creation that's honed in on this first couple, Adam and Eve. And then the author of Genesis, ultimately we know who that is, uh, that's, that's the Lord, steps back through the human author and says, for this reason, right? Uh, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And so we said that what we read there, what we read in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 becomes the foundational pattern for every marriage union. So that's kind of where we left things 
last week. Let me begin tonight with uh, a quote from uh, Dr. Daniel Heimbach uh, in, uh, in one of his, his, his books. And he is uh, a professor. He's a professor of Christian ethics at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And, and this is what he says. He says, never has there been such opposition to the authority and relevance of Scripture. Never has there been such opposition to the authority and relevance of, of Scripture, such demand for revising everything Christian, or such deep and bitter division between crusading factions as now being caused by the conflict over sex. And he wrote that back in 2004, and we know in the 15 years uh, since that has become increasingly true. And so I want to emphasize tonight, I want to re-emphasize as we begin tonight, that this issue is much, much larger than homosexuality. Uh, that's just one place where the tension has hit, hit the ceiling, so to speak. And so for us, uh, to understand the Bible's message on homosexuality, we need to back up and we need to understand the biblical sexual ethic. We need to know what God's intent was and is for marriage and for intimacy. Now, I know that may be a bit more than uh, what you, you bargained for and a bit more than what you came for tonight. But I'm convinced that we absolutely cannot rightly understand gender and marriage and sexuality apart from uh, we cannot rightly understand sexuality apart from understanding gender and marriage and sexuality. And given the time in which we all live, we cannot assume that we have a healthy understanding of those things. We live in a day and a time in which people worship sex. We live in a culture that encourages us to do so, a culture that encourages us to worship sex, and we must recover a biblical view of sex. Church, God gives us sex. God gives us sex. We must recover a a biblical view of sex. Sex is not a consumer good. It is not a necessity. In fact, Paul writes to the contrary in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Let's pause right there. Don't overlook how shocking this message is in our day. And not just in our day. It perhaps may have been equally shocking in Corinth in Paul's day. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In other words, it is not a necessity. We need to hear this. In other words, you can be fully human and live a fulfilled and purposeful and significant life without ever engaging in sexual relations. Now that may seem rather obvious to some, but that is not the message of our culture today. In fact, it absolutely flies in the face of the consistent message of the entertainment industry today. Movies and music, Netflix series and the widespread pornography industry all glorify sex as if it is a necessary consumer service without which we simply cannot function or thrive for any length of time at all. And that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. And we need to hear that. A lie that has justified abuse and prostitution and resulted in rape and slavery and a multi-billion dollar porn industry that is deeply affecting American culture today as well as 
the local church. But the abuses of sex do not diminish the gift of sex. Sex is a gift given by God, according to His Word, for a particular relationship. There are parameters for it. So in and of itself, it is not wrong. God created it and He is for it. But He is for it within the safe and loving context of a particular relationship. God gives us sex exclusively for marriage. God gives us sex exclusively for marriage. We, we simply were not designed for multiple sexual partners. Genesis 2, 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And we talked a little about that last week. But the physical and the emotional and the spiritual intimacy that happens through the marital union is designed by God to irreversibly knit couples together. In other words, sexual relations outside of marriage uh, is uh, attempting to do something that God reserves exclusively for marriage. It not only cheapens and profanes marriage, but it reduces sex to a biological function and it robs it of a safe, secure, and committed relational context. Of course, over the last few decades, there's been a lot of education and talk about safe sex. We know that. What is usually meant by that is is physically safe sex, safe from disease and safe from unwanted pregnancy. But the danger is far, far greater than that. Devastation, disappointment, brokenness, loneliness, these are the byproducts of casual Sexual encounters. We're not going to quit there. Because to only speak of the dangers of sex outside of marriage is to only get half the picture. Church, we also need to address the beauty and the goodness of sexual intimacy within marriage. God gives sex exclusively for marriage, meaning God prohibits it outside of marriage, but fully permits, even expects it within marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is why... Paul continues in that passage. He says this. He says, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Paul says, do not deprive you. Each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self control. First Corinthians chapter seven, verses two through five. You see, the truth is that we live in a fallen and distorted world. We know this. God created and it was good. No exploitation, no evil. Just God's presence and provision. And then, humanity sinned. Adam transgressed. And ever since, so have the rest of us. Sin runs deep. Temptation abounds. We need help. And God provides. When sin entered the human race, marriage suddenly got difficult. Can I get an amen? We know this. 
But it is still a taste. It is still a taste of God's goodness and his provision. It is a gift from God for our good and the specific avenue through which we can fulfill God's command to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And so God gives us sex. It is exclusively for marriage. And number three, marriage must only be marriage must only be between one man and one woman to fulfill the purpose God has for it. Let me say that again. Marriage must only be between one man and one woman in order to fulfill the purpose, the purposes God has for it. Now don't mishear me. Marriage is not a requirement. In order to bring glory to God. If you are married. Then you should strive to exalt God. To bring glory to God in your marriage. If you're single. You should strive to bring glory to God in your singleness. Your value and your identity. And your fulfillment. And your contribution to God's kingdom. Is not dependent upon being married. Mother Teresa never married. Apostle Paul wasn't married. Jesus didn't marry. Need we go any further? However. There are three purposes of marriage that I want to mention that can only be fulfilled if marriage is between one man and one woman. And first, and perhaps the most obvious, is procreation. God designed procreation to take place within the context of marriage. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We're going to camp out in Genesis for a little bit. If you want to look at Scripture, feel free to open up God's Word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. There we read. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And so God created us. He created the human race in His image. Meaning that we resemble Him and we can relate to Him and we represent Him and we are responsible to him, God created us to be distinct from the rest of creation. But notice that the scriptures don't don't stop there. The account, the story doesn't doesn't read. So God created mankind in His own image, in the image of God He created them. Period. End of story. No, the text continues. Very next line it says, "Male and female, He created them." In other words, both male and female are created in God's image. Meaning both men and women have equal worth before their creator. But we are different. And somehow, some way, in our difference, we reflect the image of God. More on that in a few moments. But right after this, right after this in Genesis 1, the creation account continues this way. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. says, God bless them. Male and female, and said to them, male and female, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so in the beginning, God created a, a gendered human race. And as a result of that good and intentional design, procreation was and is possible. Don't miss the progression of the story here. Right after the author of Genesis states that God created mankind in his image, both male and female, he records God's instruction for them to multiply and to fill the earth. Procreation requires both a male and a female. We we know this. Now, Jesus actually takes this a step further. 
He helps us make the connection here. He helps us make another connection, interpreting Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the creation accounts there together. Matthew records this for us in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 and following. Listen to what he writes. He says, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. So let's not overlook what Jesus is saying here. Quoting Genesis chapter 1, Jesus said that God created us male and female at the beginning. This was God's design, and it has always been this way. But notice what he says next. So he moves from that description in Genesis chapter 1 right to Genesis chapter 2, verse uh, 24, when he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus says God made them male and female, For this reason, a man will leave. In other words, marriage exists because and only because we have gender. According to Jesus, marriage depends upon gender differences and God instituted it because of gender differences. And that leads us to the next point I want to make. That is this, that God designed marriage to reflect His nature. God designed marriage to reflect His nature. So back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. Pick up the story. It says, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And by the way, we could spend a lot of time on that verse, on that word. Helper is not... A derogatory term by any means in Scripture. This is a word that is used again and again and again throughout the Old Testament to describe what God is to us. The idea is that there was no one there to complete Him. That what God had made, though it was very good, it it was lacking. Humanity was lacking. And so verse 21, the story picks up. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up. The place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And so the first woman complimented the first man. She fulfilled what was lacking in him. She completed him and together with him and only together with him could the two of them begin to fulfill the mandate to multiply and to fill the earth. But there's more to this than procreation. You see, God makes them different and yet through marriage he makes them one again. Different yet united. Both made in God's image yet distinct from one another in gender and all that that entails. And the picture of marriage in Genesis 2 provides that Genesis 2 provides is one of unity. Not sameness, but uniformity. Living in integrity and spiritual unity without sin. Listen to what Old Testament scholar Kenneth Matthews uh, writes on this. 
It says one flesh echoes the language of verse 23, which speaks of the woman's source in the man. And here it depicts the consequences of their bonding, which results in one new person. Our human sexuality expresses both our individuality as gender and our oneness with another person through physical union. Sexual union of the couple is, however, only symbolic of the new kinship that the couple has now entered. So distinct persons, yet united together physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Different, yet one. Now where else do we see this in God's Word? In the nature of God. God is Trinitarian, meaning He is one God and three distinct persons. He is Father, He is Son, and He is Holy Spirit. And just as both men and women are made in His image and have equal worth before Him, so each person of the Godhead is of equal worth. All are equally divine. And sure, there there are relationships within the Godhead of leadership and submission, but all are co-equal and co-eternal, enjoying perfect fellowship and harmony with one another. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. You see, even though our understanding of the Trinity is developed and clarified, By the New Testament, we get hints of it in the Old. The Bible is clear throughout that there is only one God, a truth driven home by the most well-known creed of the Old Testament recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 6, known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This word for one implies that He is the only God and that He is only one God. And therefore, Father, Spirit, and Son stand together, united as the only one worthy of worship. Now, the very same word in the original language of the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, the very same word that is used to say the Lord is one is also used in Genesis chapter 2 to say the man and the woman became one flesh when they were united in marriage. Once again, listen to... Sam Alberry on this, he writes, he says, Marriage is a wonderful God-given way for humanity to reflect the unity and diversity that is seen in the Trinity. God's oneness is not sameness, as though the three persons of the Trinity were identical to one another. It is a unity in difference, not uniformity. And the same is true of the union of a man and a woman, there is this same kind of oneness that comes when male and female are united together in this way. And so I would even go so far as to say that gender distinctions are meant to reflect the image and the nature and the character of God Himself. I am absolutely convinced the Bible teaches this, meaning that when we embrace God's design for specific gender roles, we beautifully reflect the character and the nature of God Himself. Now, that's not the whole story. See, as the story of God's word unfolds and the message of redemption is carried out, the scriptures make it clear that when we embrace God's design for marriage, we also reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Friends, God designed marriage to reflect the gospel. Designed human marriage to reflect the gospel. In Ephesians, Paul is writing to uh, the church. In his letter, he's writing to Christians. They're living in Ephesus, and he describes the theological transformation that takes place in the life of a believer that God plans and initiates and completes when a person repents and turns to Jesus for salvation. This is what he often does in his letters. He describes the theological significance of what God has done, and then he moves into practical implications of receiving this gospel. In other words, the outworking, if you will, of a life that has been rescued by God through Jesus. And so as he does so, Paul begins to give specific instructions in Ephesians chapter 5 about various household relationships and how the gospel ought to impact and to transform those relationships. By the way, this is a reminder that apart from Jesus himself, we are all infected by sin. Living in a fallen world and consumed with ourselves. But when the Spirit of God convicts us and we receive the gracious gift of Christ's sacrifice and bow before Jesus as Lord, we are giving Him all of us. I surrender all, right? I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. We give all. Yes, because He deserves all, but also because the gospel itself demands all of us. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Then Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must, what? Deny themselves, take up the cross daily, and follow me. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, it's not about me. It's not about me. My life is to be about Jesus himself. If I am one of his, then it must be. And where it's not about Jesus, then I need to repent. I need to turn it over to him and ask him to show me how to make that particular part of my life about him. And so Paul assumes that this gospel, this gospel that we know, is going to impact every single part of us, including our marriages. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, he gives specific instructions for husbands and wives. And then as he comes to the end of that section, he quotes our Genesis text. Beginning to see how important that text is for the rest of what the Bible has to say about this issue. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, Paul is quoting Genesis. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then in verse 32, he throws us a curveball. He says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so in essence, Paul says that human marriage is not just about a husband and a wife coming together in mutual commitment. It is ultimately about the greatest husband, Jesus himself, being united with his beautiful bride, the church. Two different yet complementary parties coming together in union. Jesus is our sacrificial groom. The church is his submissive bride. So when we embrace God's design for marriage, we display Christ's love for the church. So every young couple that I counsel before marriage, that very truth, your marriage is ultimately not about you. Sure, it is a a gift that God has given you for your good and your growth together, but your marriage is about someone and something much larger and grander and more significant than any one of us. 
your marriage is about the gospel. By being faithful to God's design for sexuality and marriage, we get to participate in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, faithful husbands and wives provide a tangible picture to the rest of the world of God's covenant faithfulness to His people. What a privilege. What a responsibility. And church, let me just say this. If we don't get this right, if we don't get what the Scriptures say about marriage right, if we don't get the beauty of marriage right, then we've lost our credibility to address the gay issue. We need to get marriage right. And this is why we're starting here. This is why we've taken so much time to build a foundation here. We cannot look at the gay issue apart from addressing God's design for marriage. In fact, the Bible itself says a whole lot more about marriage than it does about homosexuality. And so we need to hear what the Bible says about marriage before we can really deal with what it says about homosexuality. A reminder that we, we don't interpret individual verses of Scripture in isolation. We look at a context. As we stated last week, we read Scripture in light of the gospel of Jesus, for that is the central story and message that gives continuity and clarity for our interpretation of all of God's Word. And so what does God's Word say? Now, what does God's Word say about homosexuality? And to that, we now turn. So for the remainder of our time tonight, I want us to look specifically at two Old Testament texts. The first comes from Genesis chapter 19. You may want to turn there and look at God's Word with me. Genesis chapter 19 is the story of Sodom, Gomorrah. It's the first place the Bible mentions or refers to homosexual behavior. In fact, throughout history, sodomy has referred to unnatural sexual relations because of this very story. So let's look at it together. Before we read portion of chapter 19, Genesis chapter 18, verse 20, sets the context. So listen to what it says. It says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Perhaps you remember how that particular story unfolds. Then Abraham pleads for the Lord to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Lord, if 50 righteous people can be found there, will you spare the city? And the Lord says, yes. They keep this back and forth all the way down to 10 righteous people. For Abraham knows that his own nephew Lot lives in Sodom. Pick up the story in chapter 19, verse 1. We read the two angels. Two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. Verse 3. But Lot insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? 
Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Of course, in many translations, that's translated as know them. A word that can refer to getting to know someone, but a word that oftentimes in the Scriptures has sexual connotations. Now, many Bible readers, you may know this, in recent days have sought to diminish any notion here that God condemns Sodom because of homosexuality. And to be sure, Sodom's wickedness was far more widespread than the men of the city's obsession with engaging in unnatural sexual relations with these two angels who showed up and appeared as visiting men. How do we know that? Listen to what God says to Israel about Sodom through Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16 Verses 49 and 50. God says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them, as you have seen. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. Arrogance, gluttony. Lack of concern for the poor, haughtiness and detestable practices, but no specific mention here of homosexuality. And so this has led some to say that the sin of Sodom was attempted rape or the lack of hospitality, but not homosexuality. But a careful look at the text reveals that it was all of the above. So the account clearly indicates that the men in the city wanted to have Sexual relations with these visiting men. Verse 5. And the account is clear that all the men of the city were behaving this way. Both young and old. Everyone in the city. Verse 4. In other words, this account suggests that this had become the norm for Sodom. But in case we're still unclear, Jude of the New Testament offers clarity. In fact, Jude is writing, he's confronting false teaching in the church and he's warning his readers about the judgment of God that is going to come upon the ungodly. And in Jude verse 7, there's only one chapter of Jude, Jude verse 7, he writes, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. He says they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And so here's what's happening. Jude is using Sodom and Gomorrah as a real-life, familiar, historical example of God's judgment being poured out upon the wicked. In other words, it's meant to cause us and all readers to heed the warning. And Jude makes it clear that Sodom faced judgment for sexual immorality, meaning that their list of sins clearly included sexual sin. By the way, the term that's, transla- the term that's uh, translated here in, uh, in much of the New Testament for sexual immorality is the word uh, pornea, from which we get our English word pornography. It's a broad term that includes all sexual activity outside of marriage. But Jude specifically calls their sin a perversion, sometimes translated unnatural desire, as in the ESV, or Strange flesh in the NASB literally went after different flesh. And so the sin of Sodom, among other things, included both violent and unnatural sexual cravings. Church, this text is meant to serve as a warning. That's the reason that it's included here. 
In fact, there's a similar account in Judges 19 that resembles the Sodom and Gomorrah story, except in Judges, the perpetrators are Israelites. Caution and a warning that this sin is not only practiced by pagans, but by those who know the Lord as well. You see, God takes sexual sin seriously. And that includes the practice of sexual relations between a man and another man and a woman and another woman. But of course, it's not limited to that or particularly obsessed with it as if that sin exceeds other sexual sin. God takes sexual sin seriously. And so should we. All right, the other text we're going to look at the remainder of our time comes from Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18, as well as chapter 20. We're going to look at just two verses there. One verse is in chapter 18. Another verse is in chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 18 is a list of unlawful sexual relations. And then chapter 20 is a record of various punishments prescribed for for immorality. Leviticus chapter 18. And it helps to have a little bit of context for those that don't do their daily devotional from Leviticus. This is the giving of the law. Specific instructions through the law that was given by God uh, through Moses to the people as he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They're wandering to the promised land. They're preparing to enter the promised land and to be a nation that's set apart to be God's people. And God is teaching them what it's going to look like for them to be holy. Because God is going to reside among them. He's going to dwell among them. And, and so they must approach him in holiness and they must confront various practices in their lives. They must operate in a certain way. They must Engage in a whole sacrificial system. Must deal with issues of cleanness and uncleanness. Must display holiness for their God is holy. And so all of this is in the context of the Lord telling His people to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinct from the surrounding nations because I, your Lord, am holy. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. We read there, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And then in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, similar verse, God's Word reads, If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death, their blood will be on their own heads. Now it's important for us to note The punishment by death in Leviticus is not limited to this sin. In fact, same gender sexual relations is one sexual sin within a long list of sexual sins covered by Leviticus. And these are listed here within the broader call to holiness. God is setting apart his people to be faithful to him and to be distinct from the pagan peoples around him. Now, these Levitical texts are fairly straightforward, but just a couple things for us to notice, I think. First, notice that Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, addresses both parties participating in the same-sex sexual relations. It says both of them have done what is detestable. Clearly implying that the Bible doesn't just have in mind a forced relationship, but includes 
all homosexual activity, forced or consensual. And second, the Bible describes unnatural sexual relations as detestable, NIV, or translated as an abomination in some versions. Now, this particular word, not limited to usage here, it's found over a hundred times in the Old Testament. It's often used in the Old Testament to describe idolatry and other sinful practices that the Lord despises, including things like prostitution, pride, and dishonesty. In other words, it connotes seriousness before God and is used widely to refer to a number of sins. And as we see here, sexual sin, including sexual relations of the same gender, fit that category. Church, God takes sexual sin, all of it, seriously. And so must we. That's where we're going to pause tonight. So we've looked at a couple key Old Testament texts that address this issue. And next week we'll turn to the New Testament and we'll walk through what the New Testament has to say about this uh, issue, about homosexuality. And then my hope is in our fourth week, as I mentioned, I think last week, is then to move a bit from uh, the theology. What does the Bible say about this to some practical implications. What does it look like for us to be faithful followers of Jesus uh, with this issue? Individually and as a local church family. And So let's pray for the Lord's direction as we continue in this. Pray that He speaks to us. He encourages us. That He confronts us. That He teaches us according to His Word. Amen. I think there may have been just a handful of books left. A number of you purchased books last week. There may be a handful left and possibly uh, get some more if there's interest. So if so, be sure to let me know. But let's bow together and this will conclude our time. Father, we thank you for being with us. Lord, we thank you that even though we have all sinned and fall short of your glory that you have chased us. Lord, that you have planned before the foundation of the world to become one of us, to send your one and only Son, the fullness of God in human flesh, to do for us what we could never do on our own, to live the life that we could never live, and to lay down the sacrifice in our place so that we could receive his righteousness, Lord, your righteousness, so that we could be made right with you. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. We thank you for the hope of eternity. We thank you for the joy of salvation. Father, may we be a people, may we be a church that stands upon the truth of your word and stands under your word and humility and longs to be faithful to you. Not only in what we say we believe, but in what we do. Lord, may we be a people who reflect your gospel. But do a work in us. Confront us and shape us and challenge us and conform us more and more and more by the presence and power of your spirit in our lives into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, may our character become like his. Lord, we thank you for the chance to gather tonight and to open your word. May you use the truths of your word to 
to change us day by day. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us first. Go with us, Lord, as we scatter from this place. May we be salt and light. May we serve and worship you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.